and relationship that, that God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit have through that. But now we're looking at something that goes beyond, uh, or rather, that, that, that happened prior to John uh, writing those incredible words. So there's a few uh, blank uh, pieces on your, on your notes that you're going to fill in as we go through. Uh, panic not, I'm not going to mark them or anything that sort of ilk. That's up to you to, if you want to do it, do it. If you don't want to do it and just listen to me, then so be it. But I thought it would just help. Um, there's no slides tonight because I notice as, as I look at you that none of you have developed a third eye. One to look at me, one to look at your notes and one to look at the screen. So no slides tonight, we'll look and use these notes to help us along as we go. So, the first time things for you to look at and fill in tonight as we go through is the many references uh, in both the, the major and the minor prophets that point to the arrival of the Messiah in the distant future. So Micah would state where he is to be born. Jeremiah goes on to say that he will be both God and man. Hosea says he will be called out of Egypt. And Daniel writes his dominion would be ever lasting. I don't know about you, but as I sat and as I put this together and draw comparisons between the Jesus that we considered in the first, first verses of John chapter 1 this morning and the Jesus that we are now going to consider this evening, it makes sense. When we read that we have that we here we have this picture from Jeremiah that he will be both God and man. And that Daniel writes his dominion would be everlasting. You see, that's the Jesus that we're talking about. That's the Jesus that we come to worship. That's the Jesus that we have come to remember in the breaking of bread and our communion time together tonight. Yet we don't actually get to that part. We don't actually get to that prophecy until verse 10 of our chapter. I make no apology for this, but we have a lot of ground to cover between verse 1 and verse 10. We have got some incredible events in history, some major understanding for us to do as a group tonight as we look and unpack this chapter in Isaiah. And it starts with this encounter between Ahaz and Isaiah. Ahaz was the king of Judah. We are now then talking about a kingdom that is divided. We are talking about the northern kingdoms being Syria, or as we read in our, our version tonight, Aram. And now we consider that as Syria. It makes it easier for as we go through. And we also consider the northern kingdom of Israel and now the southern kingdom of Judah. That's where we are. That's what we're looking at this evening. The kingdom is divided. And so Ahaz fits into this picture as a king who is under the threat of war. The divisions amongst God's own people have split the nation, with idol worship being the one main contributing factors. You see, the Syrian and Israelites have come together and they've come up against Ahaz. And they've been repelled. The king has won the first little bit of the battle. He's repelled the world of Judah. Yet Syria and Israel are under threat from the Assyrians. It's worth stopping here for a moment to understand just who these Assyrian nation is, who were they led by, who was their king, who was their modus operandi, and why is it so important to this chapter in Isaiah? How many of you have heard the name Tiglath-Pileser? I'm glad there's a few. Good. I, that wasn't a test. I just genuinely wanted to know where we are in this picture this evening. Because here is a king who has such an important fundamental part to play in this battle. Tiglath-Pileser III and his army are a very real threat. 
They are the advancing world superpower. If we were going to put that into modern day, they would be China or Russia or something of that nature. Something that has the potential to change the course of history in the modern world at that time. That is the significance of who Tiglath-Pileser is. You see, being that world superpower, there is very little any other nation can do about him and his attempt to overthrow. You'll notice in your notes that there's a quote from George Roux, a French historian, and he writes this, Tiglath-Pileser is an intelligent and vigorous sovereign who, in his own words, smashed like pots the other kingdoms. Does that give you a sense of who this man is? That gives you a sense of his incredible power. Perhaps the more familiar king would be Nebuchadnezzar, for the king from Babylon, from Daniel's story. I mean, that way he was a man who of genius, a man who would go on to change the world around him. Tiglath-Pileser is put in that same bracket, an intelligent man who creates a world superpower. And so do you, now you see the trouble that Ahaz is facing. Because not only is he, as the king of Judah, in a battle, in an ongoing war between Israel and Assyria, he is now facing further threat from Assyria. So he's now facing a threat from not two superpowers, but three. And the third is a whole lot worse than the other two. And you think we have political problems today. And yet here we look at the king Ahaz. Ahaz faces a desperate situation. He either joins Syria and Israel, or does he do the unthinkable and he joins Assyria? You see, well, Ahaz does do the unthinkable. He joins Assyria. You see, the king has made the decision, only it's the wrong one. Ahaz is saved from an unholy attack by an unholy alliance, but at what cost? You see, remember, we are reminded in Isaiah time and time again of God who has an all-seeing eye. Verse 3. And the Lord said to Isaiah, The Lord had seen what had happened. The Lord had seen. He was behind the politics. He was behind the war. He was behind the battle. Remember, we talk about a God who exists outside of time. He sees the end from the beginning. And he sees all this unpacking and unfolding. And in a story that will be familiar to so many of us, God puts a rescue plan into action. Isaiah is dispatched to the king. He's dispatched with a message for the king. But he's dispatched with his son. A son with a very important name. You see, God has recognized the mess that Ahaz has made of the things. And so God, in his grace, sends his prophet. Is this ringing bells with people? That we see a world that has made such a hash and such a lash of things that it takes God's holy intervention to make a change? Have we not just broken bread? Have we not just taken one? Have we not just remembered the fact that when we made such a lash of things, that God sent his son with an incredibly significant name to come in and to change things. You see, God recognized the mess. And so God sent a prophet. By sending Isaiah, and by sending Isaiah's son, 
God is showing the king one very important aspect of his character. That God is proving himself to be faithful. God has promised Ahaz that he will be faithful to him. That the Lord said to Isaiah, go and see the king. Go and speak to the king. Go and give him my message. Isaiah was a prophet, arguably one of the greatest prophets. This isn't something that would have been entirely unfamiliar. The Lord speak directly to Isaiah to say, you go and do X. And Isaiah says, I'm off, I'm going. And he goes and he speaks to the king. So God is going to be faithful. And yet Ahaz is given something very clear that we all need to do from time to time when it comes to our relationship with God. Shut up and listen. That's the message in a nutshell. That's what we need to do from time to time, isn't it? When the word of God comes clearly to us and we say, oh Lord, if you only did it this way, it would be so much better. Friends, I say this with the utmost love, but shut up and listen. And remember, just because I'm saying it to you doesn't mean that I'm somehow absolved of all responsibility in this. There needs to be a time when we listen and are quiet to what God says. And Isaiah is given four very simple things to say. Isaiah says, by starts off this conversation with Ahaz by this, he says, be careful. Be careful. Isaiah was for your notes to pay attention to what God was saying to him. We're no different. We are no different whatsoever when it comes to what God is providing for us in a particular situation. We need to pay attention to what God is saying. Shut up and listen. And if that isn't clear enough, we're then told to be quiet. Psalms would remind us to be still and know that I am God. And everybody stops there, doesn't they? And everybody says, that's it, I'm going to be still, I'm going to be quiet. And everybody forgets part B of that verse. It says, I'm going to be exalted in the nations. There will be a time for you to praise my name. There will be a time for you to give me glory. There will be a time when I want to hear you speak. But for now, quiet. That's the lesson that Ahaz needs to pick up. We need to be careful to pay attention to what he is saying. We need to be careful and we need to be quiet. Or in other words, we need to stop talking about our problems with God. We are very good at saying, Lord, I need your help with whatever it may be. How many times have you found yourself in a moment of quietness or a moment of facing trouble and you say lord i'm going to leave these things at your feet and then the phone rings and somebody says how are you getting on with x and it all comes racing to the surface and it all comes flooding out and those words of wisdom come from the end of the phone if it's the right person if it's the wrong person you think no thank you very much <laughs> time to go now we are all guilty aren't we we are all guilty of not doing what Ahaz is instructed to do. We're not quiet. We don't stop talking about the problem. Friends, we need to let God deal with the problem. 
We need to be attentive to the solution that God is going to put in place. We are masters of asking God for help and then offering God advice on how to fix our problem. We are masters at it. You see, then Isaiah is told, or Ahaz is told by Isaiah rather, to do not fear. Ahaz needs a dose of reality. And that reality comes in only one way. Trust in God. Trust in God. We see it from time to time as you look through Scripture. You see so many people, good, bad, or indifferent, that at some point in their lives they are noted in Scripture as trusting in, in God. Abram trusted God, and it was, a tr- it was accounted to him as righteousness. Abram believed God. We see how so many people put their faith and trust in God, and it was their dose of reality when they realized that God is faithful to them. That God, if we pay attention to Him, will help. You see, and then comes the very real quote and the very real point Do not let your hearts be troubled. You see, like what it would be in this situation, it's only fair. We cannot be hard on Ahaz. Ahaz saw the armies. He saw the threat. And that was all he saw. I don't think that's entirely unreasonable to, to trust that Ahaz was right at that particular moment. That was what he saw. If you were the king of that nation, you're the one. Heavy is the head that wears a crown. It's your responsibility. You have been put there by God in this particular juncture. And everything you know is under threat. You imagine being the king, standing at the palace and looking out of the window. And seeing everybody running around as their normal everyday soldiers, market traders, young families, whoever it might be, all put in your care. It would be fair, then, wouldn't it, to say that Ahaz's heart would be troubled when he knows that not so far away is Teglath Pileser, the man who I quote, smashed like pots kingdoms around him. You see, the lesson for us from this particular juncture is this. Do not let our hearts be troubled. Look at God. Look at God. It is completely fair to say that Ahaz saw the problems around him. Completely fair. And yet when it comes to this, we find ourselves in the same situation. That when life hurts and when life is difficult, we see the troubles around us and we take our eyes away from God himself. Friends, let me encourage you to look at God. See, these four things are all very easy and lovely to say. They're all very easy for me to stand up and say, oh, this is what you've got to do and you'll all be well and it'll all be wonderful. I would be an utter idiot to think that you're going to take that and say, that's it, I'm never going to have any problems with that whatsoever. And you'd be utterly idiots if you think that's what I'm like all the time. Because we need a dose of reality in this. We need a dose of reality in the fact that when life hurts and when life comes and whatever the equivalent of our Assyria is standing over our border, that our eyes turn from Christ and they turn from God and they look at the problem. It doesn't make it right. But it makes it real. 
And so Isaiah gives us those four things. You can imagine the conversation. Isaiah speaking and Ahaz listening. Scripture makes absolutely no uh, point of saying the king makes any form of response at all. Put yourself in the place of the king. You have all this pressure mounting around you. Military men who want decisions. Political leaders who may want to compromise. Sleep has long since abandoned you. And as you listen, and as you look at Isaiah, you catch a glimpse of the young boy standing next to him. And of course, Isaiah, at that particular moment, or during the beginning of that conversation, would have introduced his son. This is Shir Jajouf. What does his name mean? It's in your lips. A remnant will turn. Ahaz, standing, looking at the prophet, looking at his son. The name is significant. It means there is a promise from God. You see, and yet when he sees all of this, and he hears this conversation, he hears this direct word from God, I wonder, in his heart of hearts, did Ahaz, who has been described as arguably the worst king Judah has ever had, does he get to that point where he believed that God would help him? Well, if you read the rest of Isaiah, you'll find out his story, but that's not my purpose this evening. You see, Isaiah isn't finished with the king yet. In verse 7, God, through Isaiah, gave the king a promise. He says that the armies will come. The armies will come. The battles will happen. The hardships we will need to face. But arguably one of the biggest promises in all of Scripture. It shall not stand. And it shall not come to pass. What does that mean? Why is it relevant for us? Is this another scriptural contradiction? Because it says here it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. And yet we realize that the king will face the battle. The country will face war. Is this a contradiction? No, this is a promise from God. This is a promise that says no matter what you face at that particular moment, no matter what you go through at that particular moment, we may face hardships. You, King Ahaz, will face hardships. And we, like him, will face hardships and difficulties, just like the kingdom of Judah. And just like the kingdom of Judah, we will never face destruction. That's what it means, that it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. We already have the victory. We may be killed for our belief in Jesus. I believe there is a time coming where we will face persecution for our belief in Christ. And I don't mean name-calling. I don't mean the pressure to privatize our faith. I mean genuinely hurtful, faith-shaking persecution. If, we, if, if Scripture is as clear as I believe it is, we will face it. And yet we realize this. It shall not stand, and it shall not come 
to pass. And the long term is this. We have the victory. We will spend eternity with him. And no harm can come to us in glory. We're still not yet to this promise and there's still more ground to cover. Verse 9, Isaiah makes his final point of this section. When all the talking between the two men is over, when Ahaz has heard from first hand from Isaiah what God is going to do, what the kids are not going to do, it all comes down to this. Is Ahaz firm enough in his faith? Because it says very clearly, if you are not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. That is a challenge to Ahaz. It is a challenge to every single one of us this evening. Ahaz stands or falls by his faith in God. And friends, so will we. You see, Ahaz finds himself in a place in the same way that we find ourselves in that place from time to time. We need something that gives us confidence in God. So that little piece in your notes there is there for you to take hold of. And when you look back over this chapter, you see that that is so significant. Ahaz needs something that gives him confidence in God. You see, there will be those of us who trust God implicitly. And deep down, we know that we trust God implicitly. But we need something to give us that confidence boost. It's like that shot of caffeine in the morning when that bleary-eyed person stares back at you from the mirror and you think, what manner of terrible thing happened to me overnight? And that caffeine kicks in in the morning and all of a sudden you can face the day. Please don't think I'm comparing God to a cup of coffee. I'm not by any way, shape or form. But you get my point. There is something that needs to give us confidence in God. And with Ahaz... Ahaz hears from Isaiah what God is going to do. It's something that Ahaz is given as a confidence boost. So, we've made it. We've covered an awful lot of ground, an awful lot of history. And now Ahaz is about to receive that something that gives him that confidence in God. You see, this morning we thought of the incarnation of the Son. We thought of how God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit were intertwined in this everlasting fellowship of the Trinity. And we saw that how Matthew would write the genealogy of Jesus. He would start at Abraham. He would work right the way down the family line. And it proved that Jesus is man. And then we looked at the verses in 1 John. And it said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so we get the significance that Jesus is both God and man. And then we are given the sign. The Lord speaks to Ahaz, to the prophet. Ask the Lord your God for a sign. There it is. There is your confidence booster. Ask God for a sign. Anything you want, the Lord is on your side. Anything Ahaz could have asked for. He could have asked God to eradicate the Assyrians, wipe out the Israelites in Syria, make me king of all the land. He could have said, make me king of the world. He could have quite easily said that. 
He could have asked for anything. God says to him, when you read those verses, verse 10 there, whatever well, make it as big as heaven. Make it as deep as you can possibly imagine. It was to be a sign that would form a basis of belief in God. And Ahaz says, no. I won't ask. I won't test the Lord. Friends, don't get this confusion with the verses of Matthew that says, do not put your Lord or God to the test. This is something entirely different. The Lord has instructed Ahaz to ask for a sign. You cannot put God to the test if you are, ask, if you are doing what he is asking you to do. There's the difference. And yet Ahaz, in his mistaken wisdom, says no. Why? Remember we said that Ahaz was the worst king that Judah had had? He wasn't interested in God. Why was he the worst king that Judah had ever had? Well, unsurprisingly, we need to look at what history tells us. Ahaz was the king who sacrificed his son to Molech. Ahaz was the king who broke one of the most holy laws of God. It's one of the only things that God calls in Scripture abhorrent. Child sacrifice. Ahaz was not interested. Because if Ahaz had taken on board God's sign and said, this is what I am going to do, Ahaz would have been left with no choice but to believe in that same God. And yet here, right here, in this incredible chapter of Isaiah, we get the point that God is a God of grace. God is a God of grace. Because God says, fine, you don't want to ask for a sign? You're going to have one anyway. Does that sound significant to you? God says to us, you don't want a way out of your sin? Fine, fine. you're going to have it anyway. You see, there's nothing new in these things. There's nothing new in these verses. There are stuff that we've heard time and time before. And yet we realize that God was about to give Ahaz something to base his belief in him. You see, Ahaz had given up on his trust in God. He had chosen to pledge allegiance to Tiglath-Pileser. The king refuses God because he has found a powerful ally. I mean, have you ever heard such a sentence in all your life? Ahaz refuses God because he has found a king to stand in his place. I'll leave you to make your own mind up about that. You see, Ahaz was not testing God with his answer. You see, Ahaz flatly refused God, like so many of us around the world today. Ahaz refuses God. This leads me to a question that we need to answer honestly. What has God offered us that we've refused? What has God offered us that we have refused? If Ahaz is looking for evidence, like my friend that I mentioned this morning, God says, fine, you want evidence, Ahaz? You want a sign, O house of David? You really want to know what I'm doing for you? I'll give it to you. I'll give you that sign because of who I am. I will offer you that sign, and it will be a benefit not just for you, but for the whole of creation. Ahaz, there will be a church in painting thousands of years from now who will praise and exalt my name for the sign that I am about to give you. Okay, I made that bit up, but... 
My point is there. The significance of this sign was so much so that it would resonate throughout the whole of history. Ahab is given a choice. Ask God, and he refuses. Ahaz is so far away from trusting God that when God speaks directly to him, he says no. Is that you or I tonight? When we get a clear message from God, something so clearly that the Lord wants us to hear, yet we are so far away from him, we ignore God completely, or better still, we just flat out refuse. Is that us? Are we standing in the picture of Ahaz? You see, your notes gives you in two chronicles, a verse in two chronicles in your notes, that gives you a clear picture of the state of Ahaz. In his time of distress, he turns away from God. You see, Ahaz's language is deliberately defiant. Yet in the face of Ahaz's defiance, God is deliberately gracious. You see, to paraphrase that as we did earlier on, God says, okay, you want a sign? not going to have a sign i'm going to give it to you anyway this is grace ahaz getting what he didn't deserve so then we come to verse 14 the virgin shall conceive he shall call him emmanuel what ahaz is in a battle against nations around him he's in a war he's a king in trouble and God says to him, Ahaz, a virgin shall conceive, and you shall call him Emmanuel. Right. Okay then, God, how does that help me in my battle? How is that going to put me in good stead when the Assyrians come marching over the hill? If I face the wrath of Tiglath-Pileser, am I to stand in front of him, and am I to say, Tiglath-Pileser, a virgin shall conceive... And you shall call him Emmanuel. It doesn't sound right, does it, in this passage? It doesn't seem to fit. Yet what we get is the most arguably one of the most famous prophecies about God showing that what he's doing is bigger than the battle that Ahaz is going to face. He is showing what God is doing, he is showing that he is in control of history, that all of history is pointing up to the moment that his son will arrive and will be born in the most incredible and yet majestic way possible. That his birth will be supernatural, his, con his conception rather will be supernatural. Isaiah has given us a glimpse of the next stage of God's plan. Isaiah has given Ahaz the prophecy. And while there are so many prophecies in Scripture that have been fulfilled already, some will be in the days to come. And for Ahaz, this is a prophecy. This is a prophecy that will be fulfilled in the days to come. When is that prophecy fulfilled? Matthew 1, 18-24 is the fulfillment of that promise. When Jesus arrives when he is born to Mary. You see, that prophecy has been fulfilled. God is with us. Rich alluded to that, the meaning of Emmanuel, in his opening comments. First of all, we get the promise of his word, as we mentioned to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now Jesus, the promised son, is born. And now God is with us in physical form. The word 
was with God and the word was God. You see, the prophecy of Jesus being sent by God to be born of a virgin, to suffer the contradiction of sinners and to redeem the world through the shedding of his own blood. And it all starts with Ahaz standing in the presence of the king and God giving him a sign. So then as we begin to draw to a close, let's focus on the promise that God gave Ahaz through Isaiah. How do we know all this adds up to Jesus? Well, the promise is given in the house of David. We know that Jesus will come from the line of David, but he will come through Mary and not Joseph. You see, Joseph's line was under the curse of Jeconia. You have the uh, verses there from Jeremiah 22 and verse 30. The curse meant this, that no descendant of Joseph would sit on the throne of David. Or rather, no descendant of Jeconia would sit on the throne of David. This is one of the reasons why the virgin birth is fundamental to the doctrine of Christ. Because if Joseph was Jesus' father... He cannot sit on David's throne. And so therefore, the importance of the fundamental nature of the virgin birth, and rather the virgin conception, is that it comes by God. Because then God is Jesus' father. Jesus sit on the throne of David. Is that big enough for us? As we understand and we get to grips of just who Jesus is, his father couldn't have been Joseph or we have been under the same curse. You see, the virgin birth is also fundamental. There will be those here that will take this verse and they will argue that the word virgin here simply means young girl. No. The ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy is that a virgin miraculously conceived and gave birth. His name is Emmanuel. Isaiah himself called him Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. And to add that to the list, Emmanuel, God with us. John Calvin said this, He is therefore God, or called God with us, or united to us which cannot apply to a man who is not God. It denotes not only the power of God, such as he usually displays by his servant, but a union of a person by which Christ became God-man. Or in other words, God incarnate. You see, the sign of Emmanuel came with a promise. For Isaiah and his followers, it meant God's protection. It meant the protection of God's we are followers of Isaiah. We live in the good of that promise. We know the sign that God gave Ahaz was the promise of the Son. And so as we rapidly approach Christmas again this year, let us hold on to that promise. Let us hold on to the picture of God's grace. A baby lying in a manger. A baby seemingly so insignificant, yet the same promise that we read later in the New Testament, that in him dwelt the fullness of God. And so we're back where we started. The word was with God, God and the word who was God. John would go on to say, the word who was with God in the beginning, the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. Isaiah would go on to say, for unto us a child is born. 
unto us the Son is given, the promised Son who God sent and called him Emmanuel. So when we face what can be the horrors of life, when, t when our version of Tiglath Pileser comes riding over that hill, we can put our faith and our trust and our hope in the fact that the virgin shall conceive and he should be called Emmanuel. Thank you very much.